COVID-19 pandemic is not going away, and there's some confusion out there about what the most accurate information truly is. Let's catch up with my friend and colleague, Dr. Ted O'Connell, right here on this special COVID-19 update here on The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I am privileged to use this platform to educate and inform you, the Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with others. I'm committed to regularly publishing these episodes related solely to the pandemic. These episodes are always free of corporate sponsorship and it's solely about education and information as a public service. The show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-11. All information in these episodes about the pandemic reference the most up-to-date information I can access, as well as personal opinions and reactions from yours truly and my guests. Please note the situation is mutable, it is changing, and any information we share here on the show might not apply once that data has been updated, expanded upon, or contradicted by the ongoing collection of evidence-based information. Please also note that nothing shared in the course of this episode or any Nurse Keith Coaching COVID-19 episode is intended for diagnosis or treatment, so please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local Department of Health, or any other evidence-based resource you trust. And if you hear something that we share on the show that you disagree with, please shoot me an email at keith at nursekeith.com. Disabuse me of anything that I've shared that you find erroneous, and I will do some research and post a public correction. Today, we are welcoming friend of the pod, Ted O'Connell. And Ted, we're going to jump right in and then get to some stuff about your bio and your career and your life later on. But the first question I have for you is a real simple one, Ted. What is your bird's eye view of where we are in the COVID-19 pandemic right now today? Well, from my perspective, Keith, I think we're in this rising plateau phase. You know, we've gotten this word from the media that the curve was flattened and we were on a downward trend and now it may be ticking back up. But when you actually look at the data, it never really ticked down. It's just kind of slowly continued to rise. And it appears that we're starting to see that rise accelerate again. And so, you know, it's not a second wave. It's more like a wave on the back of a wave that seems to be coming back. That sounds about right to me. And I know Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's, I guess we could say the top infectious disease specialist in the U.S. at this juncture, he has said that, no, there's no second wave right now. This is truly still the first wave, just like you said. And in your estimation, Ted, and the estimation of the people you trust and the people you talk to and work with, economies are opening up in ways in which some of us feel is a little quick and people have let their guard down to a very large extent in many, many places around the country or maybe even around the world. So when some people push back and say, oh, the numbers are just up because we're doing a lot more testing, what would you say in response to these factors if you put them all together in the pot right now? Right, Keith. So there, you know, some of the numbers that we're seeing increase are a result of increased testing. We have much better access to tests than we did even a couple of months ago. And and so the numbers are up from that. 
and the numbers of infections are actually increasing. So we're actually seeing both. And you mentioned factors related to that and what might be driving the increase in cases that we're seeing. So one is increased testing, as you said, one is an in, and the other is the increase in numbers. And could it be related to economies being opened up perhaps a little bit more robustly or more quickly than they should have? And, and by my estimation, the answer is partly yes. You know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult um, thing to balance because we have 30 million Americans out of work as a result of this pandemic. And clearly there are economic imperatives and there are, you know, if people aren't able to sustain their livelihood and get food and, you know, there are other causes of illness and death too that happen as a result of that that we need to consider. Uh, and we're also seeing people get a little bit cavalier about social gatherings and almost feel like, well, the pandemic was a early spring thing and now it's summertime and it's fine. And we're seeing people go out without masks when that's a pretty easy way to try to spread, stop the spread of this. Uh, you know, we're seeing protests related to the George Floyd murder where you're getting large groups of people together, uh, sometimes not wearing masks. And that's kind of a setup for that. It's summertime. People want to get outside. They've been cooped up with this, you know, the shelter in place orders. And there's a natural tendency to want to get out. You know, and there's probably a lot of other factors um, kind of all leading into this, but we are heading towards seeing more infections. And back a number of months ago, people were talking about the summer as if it was going to be this panacea, that it's going to be just like flu or just like 1918, when it's going to go underground and things are really going to be great over the summer. And I think part of it I'm seeing out there in the world, my personal reflection or perception is that some of it's wishful thinking. And I feel like the whole country seems to feel like it's on spring break right now. And I'm just shaking my head thinking, oh my gosh, what have we done? And some are saying that, and I've, I've heard this on several podcasts I've listened to, including with Sanjay Gupta and some folks coming through saying, if we had started out of the gate, doing 5 million, 10 million, 20 million tests a day at the beginning, yes, that would have been super, super expensive and logistically difficult. However, it was done in other countries, and maybe we could have not closed the economy so severely and spent the money up front instead. So I know we can't Monday morning quarterback. Well, we can, but it doesn't do us much good. But if we ramp up testing now, if we really get it even further than we we do now, can we head it off at the pass for the fall and the winter? Do we have a shot right now? Well, Keith, I, you know, I think it's actually a fair thing to do some Monday morning quarterbacking because that's actually okay. learning from history. And, and in this case, history is very, very recent. And I, it, I think it's pretty clear that if our nation had consistently shut things down even a couple, two weeks earlier. And if we had access to widespread testing at that point, we didn't really have good access to it or, or had declined some of the tests that were available from overseas. Right. The German tests from the WHO. Right. Right. And if we had imp had started some of that and had done real contact tracing right off the bat, we would likely have had far fewer deaths than we already had. Hmm. Going forward, Yes, that's absolutely one strategy is to do more widespread testing, 
make sure that we're doing really good contact tracing, find those individuals that are positive and put them in quarantine and, you know, expect that they stay home. And there are all the other factors, you know, not going out in large public gatherings if you don't have to, wearing a mask when you're out in public, washing your hands, just kind of using common sense and, and being aware that this virus very much is still out there. And, and you know, you, you had referenced 1918 and what happened in the summer months, and it did temporarily go underground, and then it came back with a vengeance, and, and far more people died in the subsequent waves than they did in the first waves. That's very true. Yeah. And I think that was the hope with, you know, with this particular virus. Coronavirus is the same family of viruses that cause the common cold. Those tend to go away in the summertime. And I think there was some hope, um, maybe not rooted in, partially rooted in science, but some hope that it would go away in the summer months. But it really just doesn't seem to be happening that way. And I think what we're seeing too is, it, it has been fairly focused in this country in terms of where it really went rampant. You know, we all saw New York City mm-hmm. and Detroit and New Orleans, and, and it's been kind of pockets. And there are entire communities where it has not really hit very hard. And so there's a little bit of um, the sense that, well, it's not happening in my backyard, so I, I'm okay. And I think we just really need to be very cautious and wary because it can, it will be in our backyards. It will be indeed. And we've been fairly lucky in New Mexico, though we are seeing upticks here in certain sense. And we're surrounded. Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona are all on their way up. And here we are in June. It's getting really hot in Texas. My mother-in-law lives outside of Austin. And numbers are going up in Houston, which is pretty darn far south and it's a pretty hot, humid area of the country and Florida as well. So the whole summer prognostication thing is not coming coming to, to fruition the way some people had hoped. And I reserved judgment. I said, I really hope the summer is wonderful, but I always felt that the summer was not going to be as good as people felt. It's starting to look like wishful thinking at this point, yeah. you know, in, in these hot temperate, you know, temperate or hot climates, it really is still surging. And and the more I watch this virus, it is really acting in kind of different ways than other viruses that we've seen. You know, as I said, typical coronaviruses do often kind of peter out in the hot summer months. And even just the way, you know, the variability in the way people are being affected by it and and the, the way it affects the human body just seems to be acting differently than t- viruses that we typically see. And, and even, you know, now, right now we're seeing more people getting infected and fewer people dying. And there's a lot of questions about why that is. And is it more, you know, are we, are we testing more people who are minimally symptomatic and just the numbers are skewed? Or is it more younger people who are out and about getting sick and not being affected? Or is there something happening, you know, related to temperature or mutations in the virus or something else that, that are causing that? There's just a lot to be learned, but this it, it's a funky virus that's acting, you know, in unusual ways. Right. It truly is. And I know you're a, the founding director of Family Medicine Residency Program at Kaiser Permanente Napa Solano. 
and your associate clinical professor at the UC San Francisco School of Medicine and an assistant clinical professor at the UC Davis and Drexel University Schools of Medicine. So you're a family practice physician, you're a professor of medicine, so you've been around and you know what you're talking about and you've seen this up close. You're not working in the ICU, you're training family medicine, but you're seeing this on the ground and you have your own COVID-19 coronavirus podcast, right? It was Common Sense Conversations about the coronavirus, right? That's correct. Common Sense Conversations... On the coronavirus pandemic. On the coronavirus pandemic. I listened to an episode just yesterday morning. And so you're coming from a place of expertise. So I want to dig into what you just mentioned. And I just want to bring up some of your credibility here so people know where you're coming from. So you're saying it acts differently. So we've heard several different storylines through here, the narratives, right? We've had, first it was the pulmonary symptoms and the fever, and then we had the diarrhea and abdominal pain, and then we had the loss of sense of taste and smell. Then we had COVID toe chillblains, or the, the kind of coagulopathy in the toes, right? The discoloration in the toes. And now we have this manifestation in young people, in children. So can you talk a little bit about this, this kind of disseminated uh, what is it, like a hyper-inflammatory process going on? What what do you know and what can you share? Right. So in children, and first I want to say in children, by and large, they are don't seem to be getting infected in the same numbers as adults, or at least the infections are not nearly as serious. But there is a small subset of children who are getting some very significant illness and it has parallels to two other diseases that we um, know that can affect children in significant ways. One is called Kawasaki disease. And in that, there's a number of manifestations, skin manifestations and um, swollen hands and feet and red lips. And the real concern with Kawasaki disease is the coronary arteries, the, the arteries that feed the heart can develop uh, aneurysms, which are like bubbles in, you know, or, or outpouchings, and that can lead to early onset heart disease in these in these children who have been infected by or affected by Kawasaki disease. And for years, there's been research going into what is actually causing Kawasaki disease, and a lot of the assumption is maybe there's some genetic predisposition, and it's probably viral. And now COVID seems to be causing something that looks something like Kawasaki, but does appear to be different. And it also shares some characteristics with a condition called toxic shock syndrome, where you um, essentially get sick and your, your body's immune response kind of overwhelms itself. It's an over response to a toxin usually, and that will cause um, and organs shut down, you know, the heart, the kidneys, the liver um, go into failure and blood pressure drops and, and it's all kind of happening at the same time. And it has some parallels with that as well, but it really does not appear to be the same thing. But what we're seeing in children is, is who, ha- who are affected significantly by this, there seems to be a real inflammatory component of the heart, which can lead to fatal arrhythmias, it can lead to heart failure. It can lead to fluid around the heart, a lot of different things. So yeah, it's a really interesting phenomenon that's very actively being studied and evaluated. 
Yeah, and this this inflammatory response, this hyperinflammation, is this where we get the cytokine storm? Is that what we're talking about here? Yes, absolutely. So cytokine storm is what's behind it. So typically when you have an infection, your your body sets off this immune response where your cytokines get released and and create the fever and and bring in all the blood cells that help fight the infection. And sometimes things go a little haywire where your body overreacts to that and and can produce this cytokine storm. And that causes all kinds of trouble. It, it makes your blood vessels dilate and your blood pressure drop and your your organs get affected and and, and kind of creates this disaster because your body's overreacted. Right. And obviously we don't know yet the long-term implications for say these young people who are teenagers or in their 20s who are having this experience. We don't know what their heart muscle will look like when they're 25 or 35 or 45. No, there's a lot that we don't know about this, you know, for these children what what that the long-term outlook will look like. You know, there's concerns in adults who have significant illness about whether there's going to be a long-term loss of lung function. Mm-hmm. What, you know, we've seen adults go into kidney failure. And there's questions about what the long-term outcome of that is. I, I personally have had some patients describe, you know, insomnia and difficulty with their memory and just long, you know, ongoing fatigue. So there's some questions, a lot of questions actually about what the long-term sequelae are of this, uh, it, you know, when you have a significant um, reaction to COVID. Right. And this fatigue that people talk about, I have several friends who couldn't get tested when they were sick a month or two months ago, just couldn't get tested even in Massachusetts. And their fatigue is still so incredibly profound. And they just feel like they're getting better. And then they're slammed back down and they have to rest a couple days again. So a lot of people are seeing these different manifestations. And we even have people who we know were, were definitely seem to have had COVID back in January even here in New Mexico. And, you know, they had every symptom, chillblains, they had all the symptoms. And it's very concerning that it was around so long that we weren't aware, just something was happening. So one thing I want to bring up here, Ted, as we move through this summer, and we, again, the summer's just beginning, when the fall comes and influenza comes back, because it always does, right? And we'll have a flu vaccine of some level of efficacy. What are your concerns and what are you hearing among your communities in the California medical system and UCSF? What are people preparing for? What are the thought processes happening when we think about COVID-19 layered on top of a flu season? I think it's um, creating a lot of fear among physicians and and medical centers and hospital groups about what the potential is here. Um, it's interesting that we're recording this today on June 18th, mm-hmm. because just today in California, our governor instituted mandatory masking for everybody who goes outside. Just today. Just today. And that was kind of a response to what we're seeing as a real uptick in the state and people becoming cavalier about wearing masks and a lot of variability county to county uh, in terms of what the requirements are, mm. and a lot of the kind of what are being called anti-maskers yes. going out and picketing outside of, of public health officials' homes. And I think we've had now seven or eight 
public health officials in various counties who have resigned because of the kind of threats and and um, pressure on them. Many threats, yes. Yes. So the governor finally came out and and put that into place, and it's an attempt to try to get this thing under control before the fall months come when influenza comes around, as you mentioned. And you know, I'm hoping that everybody will take this seriously and more people will get flu shots than they typically would. Mm-hmm. And I personally, with my patients, am talking to them proactively about this, making sure they're up, you know, I try to do it anyway, but making sure they're up to date on their pneumococcal vaccines and other things that you can try to prevent so that they don't get kind of hit with a double whammy. Um, because it it has all kinds of potential to create a lot of um, morbidity and mortality and potentially overwhelm hospitals, just as we were seeing in New York a few months ago. Absolutely. And you see, I live here in Santa Fe, which is a tourist mecca, and we're not really fully open, but some art galleries are open and you can get food and eat outdoors at cafes and the tables are spaced, etc. Tourists are coming from often Texas. We get a lot of Texan tourists, and there's a big uptick in Texas, as I mentioned about 10 or 15 minutes ago. And like I said, we're surrounded, Arizona, Oklahoma, Texas. And what myself and others are worried about here is that we've been doing a pretty good job here for the most part. Our governor's done a pretty good job, but there's a few issues I could take with what's happened, but it's been okay. But with the tourists coming in, I feel like, okay, we are opening ourselves up and we're opening ourselves up to people coming from other states. And I even see tourists walking around downtown shopping, blatantly not wearing masks. And there's even tourists I've heard tell of friends. This one friend was actually accosted in a grocery store here in town this week because she was wearing a mask and everyone else was, but this tourist from Florida was going off about how we're all we're all um, left-wing communists and going off about masks. So we have people coming to our state, criticizing what we're doing and potentially spreading disease. So I'm sure that concern is everywhere among people who are thinking about such things. So what do we do with all of this disinformation, misinformation, pushing back. We can't argue with every person out there. So do we need to do what Governor Newsom just did today and just declare statewide that this is absolutely required? Well, uh, Keith, I would say, you know, we talk about, you were talking about tourists. It's not just the tourists too. It's it's mm-hmm. people in, who live and, and work in our communities. I, I, on Memorial Day, I went to Home Depot with a mask on and waited in line to get in. And at least half the people in there didn't have masks. And I would say probably none of them were tourists. So it, it's, it you know, that it, right. it's, it's people in our own backyard too. And that this is part of the challenge of having different states doing kind of different things and not having an organized federal response to this. You know, it would be great if Anthony Fauci or somebody else were really leading the charge here and explaining and, and being given the the platform to be able to do that about why. And, and you'll still get people who want to push back or don't want the government telling them what to do or have their own views on things. But hopefully, maybe that would be fewer and what do we do about that? 
you know, I think we try to educate in, in a level-headed way. And what you're doing here with this podcast and, and just talking through these issues, you're, you're not going to convince everybody. I'm not going to convince everybody. But if we can get a few more people kind of doing the right thing, staying home a little bit more, wearing a mask, you know, just being smart about taking it seriously, one at a time is part of the answer, I, th- I think. I think you're right. And we have media outlets doing very good job with this. And we have media outlets who are doing fairly spurious jobs out there. So I guess from the very beginning, since gosh, early March, I feel like I've been part of the information war out there. And I think all of us have been playing our part, whether we talk to just our our uncle or a friend or a neighbor, or we do a podcast, whatever it happens to be, or we write letters to the editor. So Everybody has to do their part wherever they feel like they fit into this puzzle. So, Ted, I guess many people are placing hopes in a vaccine, and we're likely a good year off from a vaccine. That's what I hear. Do you hear the same basic message about that? It's somewhere in that neighborhood. You know, at the onset of this, the, the word was 12 to 18 months, and, and we keep hearing that, you know, there are companies that are getting close to having a vaccine or maybe even have a vaccine available, but there's still a lot of um, additional steps where they have to test it and make sure that it actually works properly in larger groups of people and doesn't have uh, you know, uh, untoward side effects. And mm-hmm. then they have to ramp up production. So yes, we're probably you know, minimum six to nine months and, and realistically more like the 12 months you're talking about. Right. And there's safety there's efficacy, and then there's actual manufacturing, and then there's distribution, and then there's actual administering a vaccine. And I've run fairly medium-scale vaccine drills when I was a public health nurse in a town of 25,000, and just planning to vaccinate 20,000 people was a big deal. And that was just a test. That wasn't even the real thing. This was during H1N1 and we were practicing. So to vaccinate, I don't know, 30 million people, 40 million people, that is a big logistical undertaking. And was it the measles or no, the mumps vaccine, I think, was the one that was produced and distributed faster than any vaccine in history. And wasn't that four years, three and a half years, something along those lines? I'm going to have to plead ignorance on on that one. Um, I, I think it was measles following the outbreak at Disneyland. I think but, it was measles. Yeah, but I don't right. want to be quoted on that. You know, we need to get to sixty to seventy percent of our population having immunity to this, whether that's through mm-hmm. natural infection or through immunization, in order to get into the ballpark of having herd immunity, where the virus really just doesn't have much opportunity to spread. And right. so, you know, if right now, depending on the data you look at, it's probably four, maybe 5% of the population that that has it. And if we're, I don't even know what the current population of the US is, but if it's 350 million and you want to get to 70% of that, you're looking at 200 million plus that actually need to be vaccinated, which is a, just a, an outrageous number. Right. That's a lot of people. And Of course, we talked about testing, efficacy, safety, manufacturing, distribution, and then actually doing the actual injecting of people, which is a big undertaking. 
And then we actually have how long will such immunity last? We don't even know. So that won't be known for quite some time. So of course, treatment is really where where it's at in the shorter term. And I don't know if I've shared this with you, but my brother is actually head of COVID-19 research at the Vice Institute at Harvard. And there's an article out recently that I'll put in the show notes, if I remember, about what they're working on at the Vice at Harvard. And he's excited, but also, of course, he's a scientist, so he's guardedly, you know, doesn't try to be too optimistic, but it's there and they're working on it. So there's some drugs that are coming through that look like they could have some promise, whether they're repurposed drugs that are previously approved for something else or novel molecules, which I think is a bigger undertaking. But recently, I wanted to ask you about this emerging data about dexamethasone, also known, I think, as decadron, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. So can you tell us about dexamethasone and what do you know about this data coming out about its use in specific instances with COVID-19. Sure, Keith. And I think I'd actually like to comment on what the data shows and then just talk about it theoretically so we can get out ahead of some of the messaging here. Great. Go for it. There was a study out of the UK on dexamethasone. And what they found was that individuals who are really sick, those who are intubated and in the intensive care unit, did actually benefit from the use of dexamethasone. And they also found the group that was not quite as sick, but it was seriously ill in the hospital requiring oxygen also benefited from dexamethasone, just not as much. Or you okay. need to treat more people to get the same life-saving benefit. What dexamethasone has not been shown to do is prevent COVID-19 infection, it has not been shown to, for somebody who's asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, prevent them from developing more severe illness. And even those who are kind of mildly to moderately ill, there's no data to support its use. So it's really those who are seriously ill in the hospital, where in this one study, it's shown some benefit. One study. We're, we're all trying to, in this one study, is what? yes, in one study. Yeah. Um, you know, we're all taking some of this data with a grain of salt because we've now seen several big studies around COVID-19 get Mm -hmm. debunked and get retracted from very reputable journals. So I think some of us would let, you know, are looking at it and would like to see some additional data to support um, what we're seeing preliminarily. There are a lot of studies that are being released before being peer-reviewed, and that's an important process in the scientific, scientific method to actually have it go through that process. So I think that's important. Um, but really, what when you think about the way your body responds to an infection, is the initial response is a relatively mild one where your body starts to generate antibodies. And it's later on in that inflammatory response where you can start to really feel sick. You know, you get the muscle aches and you get the fever and you don't feel well and you're lethargic. Mm-hmm. That's when your body's really ramping up its response. And then sometimes, as we've talked about with the cytokine storm, the response goes haywire. And when you're thinking about it up front, you want to give your body a chance to develop antibodies, and hopefully you get this minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic infection, and your body develops antibodies, and hopefully you're immune. We don't really know that yet. 
And the concern is if you take dexamethasone, which is a steroid that blocks your body's immune response, that you may actually prevent your body from developing the appropriate immunity. And, and there's actually plenty of evidence that by blocking your immune response, you can actually allow the virus to potentially, you know, an infection to go haywire and overwhelm your immune system that's not responding properly. So that's the part that I want to get out ahead of is I don't want, you know, I, I would hope people aren't taking dexamethasone prophylactically or, oh, or early an infection, like, you know, like our president was encouraging people to do with hydroxychloroquine. And now that's, you know, so that that's my messaging around that is it's for like critically ill individuals, maybe. That's a very good message. And I was reading, I believe that it was critically ill people who were having very severe pulmonary dysfunction. Right. Right. And in my experience working in the HIV world years ago, I recall dexamethasone being used when patients were having brain infections, when there was great inflammation of the cerebrum, right? I, that rings a bell for me yeah. in terms of the use of Decadron back in the days of when HIV and AIDS, we were still trying to wrap our heads around everything back in those days in the 90s and early 2000s. Well, I, I don't have enough expertise around brain inflammation in the setting of AIDS to, to really give you a, a, an intelligent answer on that. St mm -hmm. Steroids like prednisone and dexamethasone, though, are utilized frequently in inflammatory conditions to try to knock the inflammation down when it's appropriate. And as it turns out, there are some inflammatory conditions where it's very beneficial some inflammatory conditions where it doesn't really add much, and then some inflammatory conditions where it does more harm than good. And, and mm. that's where all these studies um, come, you know, why they're so important so that we actually look at it and we're not just throwing steroids uh, at people because steroids can actually have very negative effects. It, you know, in addition to knocking your immune system down, they can cause blood sugar to go through exactly. the roof and create issues uh, related to that. They can suppress your body's ability to um, react to infections through the adrenal glands. Taking it long-term can cause all kinds of issues related to osteoporosis and weight gain. And, you know, the list goes on and on. So steroids have their place, but they also sometimes cause more trouble than they're worth. Absolutely. Now, I want to talk about your residents and medical students who you work with, but I have one question for you. You mentioned the peer review process. Now, let me tell you my understanding that when some preliminary research comes out and a paper gets submitted to, let's say, the journal Nature or the New England Journal of Medicine, you then have a panel of experts, those are the quote unquote peers, who then take a deep look at that research to look for holes in the process, how the research was done, et cetera, et cetera. And then once it's been peer reviewed and approved for publication, it's published, let's say, in the New England Journal of Medicine, then the press releases go out and the media finds out about it, and it's all over the papers and the magazines and the news. So very briefly, can you explain how that particular process is getting short, maybe not short-circuited, but circumvented right now because of the rush to get this information out? What is happening, and why is the media picking up on this stuff before they normally would? 
Well, you described the process around peer review very well, so I won't add anything to that. Uh, okay. I, I think in terms of the, the research getting out in the COVID era, there are really two main things happening. One okay. is we're dealing with a real public health crisis, and any data that comes out that potentially can help save lives, there's some imperative to get that out there um, because the peer review process takes so long. And, and you know, physicians are trying to figure this virus out and, and figure out how to manage it. And epidemiologists and public health experts and nursing and everybody's looking at this, trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. So there's some importance around getting that research out in a really timely manner. Okay. The other side of the coin is the media wants stories. And so if they find something quickly and can, you know, get their teeth into something and, and, and be the first to break a story around an interesting um, study, they're getting it out there. And sometimes it's getting out there more quickly than it should. And sometimes it's being misinterpreted too, as it, as it's being put out there. I see. And maybe they saw the words preliminary results, but they just happened to not mention that when they broke the story, because that's not necessarily news. So the preliminary result part just kind of gets overlooked. And then every news outlet picks up on it, it gets on the AP wire, and then then it's the that horse has run its race, I guess. Right. And then we're we're out there trying to work against what the the media is saying. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. And you know, yeah. these journalists are not scientists and we don't expect them to interpret everything. Um, but there's a danger in, in taking a piece of a study or making a generalization that shouldn't be made or or extrapolating too far or just not understanding the data. You know, all kinds of things can happen. Right. Thanks. I just wanted to talk about that because some people out there listening might have a question about why is this happening? Why is this information getting out? So before we start to, to wind down, I want to mention again that you are a professor of family medicine and you run the, the, the residency program at Kaiser Permanente in Apostolano. So you and I have talked about this before when you were on my show for one of my first COVID-19 updates. And we talked about how do we educate people during this period of time. And what I really want to check in with you about right now on this episode is how are your students and your medical residents feeling? Like, what is this experience like for them? What What's kind of going around the population of students who you interact with? Well, I think the emotions around this, Keith, really run the gamut. Um, mm -hmm. Medical students, when you talk to them, are incredibly anxious because they've now had three to four months of their training put on hold. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't been able, you know, we're heading toward the fall is the summer and fall are kind of the times for um, fourth year medical students to do some of their audition rotations at residency programs where they might want to train. It's the time when they gather their letters of recommendation. Uh, this is also testing time when they take their medical licensing exams, and many of those have been canceled or kind of indefinitely deferred. And, and so they're they're going into interview season with you know not no you know they're getting ro rotations have been canceled or their schools are telling them they shouldn't travel for rotations. Their tests they haven't been able to do their tests, and so they're going into interview season without the usual um, paperwork th that they would have and the, and the usual stuff to present to programs. And they're very anxious about it. And we're trying to tell them 
we're in the same boat and we're trying to, uh, from the residency side, trying to figure out how we're going to do a virtual interview season and evaluate people without all of the information we normally would have. So it's, it's creating a lot of chaos. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some students are talking about, should I take a year off and, and just kind of hope that the system reboots itself and, and pick it up next year. I don't know the answer to that one because there may be, you know, if a lot of students do that, then you get a bottleneck of too many students applying for residency all at the same time. Right. In terms of, you know, the, the residents, they also in many cases have had their training disrupted and, you know, for, for procedural specialties like surgery and things like that, that can, you know, missing out on a lot of cases can be really tough. We, Mm -hmm. um, in my specialty have, moved rotations around and made sure that they continue to get clinical training, even if it's not, you know, they're maybe now they're in the ER instead of being in the outpatient clinic. And we're, we're trying to ensure that the training continues. I see. And they were anxious in the beginning and have now kind of settled into it. And there was anxiety about their training and anxiety about potential exposure to COVID and taking that home to families mm-hmm. and, you know, all the stuff we all deal with, um, and they're also in a training environment, so it's just um, a little bit heightened, I would say. I can only imagine what you as the professors and educators are going through and what the students and the residents are going through. The uncertainty, the you know, trying to launch a career or even trying to launch one's residency career so one can just get the training that one would like to get in order to become a physician or a surgeon or whatever their specialty happens to be. And I can't even imagine the the stress because of what, what they went through to get to this point, to become a medical student, to get into medical school in the first place. And to have this, it's this isn't even a curveball. This is like a sledgehammer thrown at someone's schooling, just like all the nursing and PT students and social work students who are out there. And the level of suffering among those who want to be educated is in a way beyond my comprehension. Yeah, Keith, I think your description, calling it a sledgehammer is a perfect metaphor for this. It, it has completely disrupted training and all of us, whether it's optometry, physical therapy, nursing, medicine, we all want to be really competent in, in what we do in our professional careers and getting the training we need is part of that. And I think, you know, the concern about missing certain procedural skills or certain knowledge acquisition or certain experiences creates a lot of anxiety for our learners that they may not be getting the competency that they need. Good point. And and related to competency, I know that you are the co-founder and the chief operating officer of Exam Circle, where it's an innovative online platform of question banks to help folks get ready with their preparation for taking the boards. And you're also co-founder and chief content officer of Inside the Boards, which is audio resources for folks getting ready for the medical boards, correct? That is correct. I've had a focus, partial focus of my career on preparing students and residents for their medical licensing exams. Uh, And the idea with Exam Circle is actually to expand beyond medicine at some point once I get all the medicine part figured out and uh, doing NCLEX and nursing training is is the next logical step and part of the plan. I just need to find the bandwidth and time to, 
to get there. That's right. And I have a friend who's an expert in NCLEX, Keith, Damian Keith Jenkins over at the Nurse Speak. And so we'll introduce you all at some point to talk about NCLEX prep because he's someone who knows a great deal about it and works with his clients one-on-one to do that and has great success. And we want people passing these boards and the NCLEX because we need them out in the field. And you and I talked about that when you were on my show before about this this way of of looking at the training and possibly even eventually being able to train nursing students and medical students at the same time and have them understand one another more. Yes, I think we talked about that the first time I ever appeared on your podcast, uh, talking about interprofessional education between nursing and medicine. And it just makes all the sense in the world. I think we'd have better communication, better patient outcomes, better relationships if there was some combined training so that there, there was a better understanding of, of what each other's backgrounds are. Right. Well, when you're king of the world, Ted, this will all come to be. And we'll, you know, we'll all look back fondly on these days when we thought it wasn't even possible. So <laughs> speaking of being king of the world, you know, I know you're, you're a father, you're a husband, you're a physician, you're a professor, you're do all of these wonderful creative things. And speaking of creativity, the Nurse Keith Show is now a member of Ars Longa Media, which is a media collaborative. And the podcast is where it's all begun. And I'm really honored to be invited as the first nurse podcaster to be part of this collective. So can you just explain what Ars Longa Media is and what Ars Longa means? Yes. Ars Longa is part of a sentence written by Hippocrates. And it's ars longa vita brevis, which means art is long, life is short. And the goal with our collaborative is really to bring great content around healthcare. And and right now it's podcasts and could expand beyond that. But we're looking at it broadly, nursing, medicine, psychology. And the goal is to bring, you know, really credible information to the public so that we can provide education and some entertainment, um, bring in experts in their field to provide that information and and really just make it a a great resource and and group network where people can learn, you know, your fans can learn about other podcasts and vice versa and and hopefully be entertained and learn something along the way and, and perhaps make their commute seem a little bit shorter as they listen to our podcasts. That's right. And when you mentioned bringing in the humanities, I know there's this desire to bring in arts and music. And, you know, we know about art therapy, music therapy, and we also know the role that arts plays just out in the community and in our own lives. I was doing watercolors with a friend outside today, social distancing, of course. So there's plenty of ways to collaborate. And I love how you're talking about this and what Ars Longa is doing because medicine and nursing and PT and social work and psychiatry shouldn't and can't really be practiced in a vacuum because we're part of the wider culture. We're part of the wider world. And we, we're fathers and mothers and brothers and teachers. And we, we're part of this large community here in the United States and around the world. And the humanities is part of it. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And so thanks for creating a platform where I think we're going to be able to bring a lot of this together. It's really exciting. Absolutely. And we're, as I said, we're thrilled to have you be part of it. You're, what you're doing is completely in alignment with our goals. 
And as you said, we do want to bring in the humanities and really be thinking about all of this from a wellness standpoint and, okay. and talking about healthcare and life and art and humanities and joy in, in everything that we do. Mm. Well, Ted, thanks for being the human being you are and bringing humanism to medicine and medical training and to podcasting. And, and it's, uh, it's such an honor to have you. Well, thank you, Keith, for having me back on your show. It's always a pleasure. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Remember the show notes where you can read more about Ars Longa Media and Ted O'Connell in his work or at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-11. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts, media entities, musical artists, and others whose aim is to add that humanistic touch to professional education and educate the public from a scientifically informed perspective and improve lives by partnering to address social ills. So remember to go to arslonga.media, that is A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappy Speeson is our stalwart social media ringmaster. I'm very grateful to Mark and Rob for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction. Stay safe, stay informed, and be the nurse and healthcare professional who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my friend, Dr. Ted O'Connell, bidding you adieu from the Bay Area of Northern California. All right, Ted, thank you. And thank you, everyone. And we will catch you on the flip side.